Good morning, everyone. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We ask that you would join us here today because our goal is to see you and to know you more fully every day. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number three in our quarterly, People on the Move, the book of Numbers. And the lesson title this week is Worship and Dedication. And if somebody would read the second paragraph for us right there in Sabbath's lesson beginning, Nevertheless. Nevertheless, the unified factor is the Lord, the one who created and redeemed as well as us. Whatever the gaps in culture, language, and history, we worship the same God, no matter the differences in our forms and expressions. Indeed, the basic truths taught to them through their rites and rituals are in principle the same ones we are to learn today. Do we all worship the same God? Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now these people who are speaking to Christ, what are they calling him? Lord. So who do they think they're worshiping? Are they? This is out of Faith I Live By, page 59. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false God as were the servants of Baal. Who do they think they're serving? They think they're serving God. They think we're all serving the same God. Are we all worshiping the same God? You see, this passage from Christ, it says, they'll say this in my name. They aren't saying, doing all these miracles and things in the name of Buddha or the name of Hare Krishna. They're doing these things in the name of Jesus. Yet he says, I never knew you. Have you ever given that thought? Or do we kind of have this idea, well, if you're Christian, we're all worshiping the same God. And if, we're, and if it's not Christian, then maybe you're worshiping the same, same God. But within Christianity, we may be worshiping a different God because of the false conceptions people hold. What about the idea in the paragraph that the same basic ideas or same basic principles or truths uh, that, that the Israelites learned are the ones we are to learn today? What did you think about that idea? They crucified him. They crucified him. Yes? Were we to regress to uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life? Yeah, I like, I like your thinking. Are we to go backwards? You see, truth is unfolding, isn't it? Should we be learning the same basic truths that they learned? Yes. So are we beyond the Ten Commandments? Because those are pretty basic truths to their the two commandments. Are we beyond those? Well, let's uh, let Paul answer you from Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11. And I think he answers that question directly. It says, Hebrews five eleven through 6, verse 2. We have much to tell you about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths. Will we say elementary basic truths here? Elementary? Okay. Elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. 
But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings, the basic truths. Let's leave that behind. Let's, let's move on to something bigger. What are we leaving behind? Uh, let's, let's leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Hmm, repentance from acts that lead to death. What is it that we use to define those acts? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are what focus us on our bad behavior. Isn't it? If it wasn't for the law, the written law, I wouldn't know what sin is. The law was given so that sin might abound. So bring me to conviction. Bring me to repentance. But we are not to lay again that. We are to move past that. Yes? At the end of that passage, he says we need to move beyond, which could be we need to ignore those and move in a different direction. Or it could be, we, as he mentions foundation, as he says in the beginning, you should already know these things. You need to understand those things. Then mature beyond that. Do we in this room, any of us in this room, need to go back to first grade and learn the ABCs, the alphabet? No. Uh, you said sometimes, so you think there's some people in here that need to learn the alphabet. Anybody in here cannot say they're ABCs? I don't think so. Does that mean, though, because we're beyond that, we don't need to learn the alphabet, that we don't use the alphabet every day? That the alphabet doesn't come into play in everything we do? And all of our thinking, and all of our speaking, and all of our, our, our dialogue, even, even inside your mind you think in English, which requires the alphabet. So do we do away with the alphabet because we're beyond it? What would we do in school, in college? You send your student to university over here to get a degree, and what you find they're teaching them is the alphabet. Would we say, these are primitive, these are primitive teachers. They're moving backwards. We need to be moving forward. That's what Paul is saying here. And that's what I'm suggesting. I think Russell was suggesting. It's not doing away with, but it's saying we should already have had that foundation and be building on the life of love that it looks like when someone has the foundation of God's law in their heart. You call that maturing. Maturing, yes, yes. So do we need to act like we are slaves brought out of Egypt with no understanding of right and wrong? That's where the children of Israel were. Or should we be moving forward in that? So the question then comes, why did God give Israelites this service, this sanctuary service that we are talking about today? Was it because they understood truth clearly? Or was it because they were hard to teach, had darkened minds, and understood very little? Well, this is out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 364. I like this commentary because I think it's right on the money. It says, If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept the law... God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon tables of stone. And had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need of the additional directions given to Moses. So what's being described in this paragraph? God's patience. God's patience. Teaching tools after teaching tools because they didn't get the previous teaching tools. So any teachers in the room? Have you ever had students that maybe were a little slow, just didn't quite catch on quickly? And as a teacher, did you 
think hard and try to come up with new and inventive ways to help connect the dots for them. Didn't you? Didn't you? Or did you just turn your back on them and say, well, forget them? That's not a teacher, she says. There's a teacher right here. Yes, I teach all the time. And I'm always thinking of ways to try to meet that person's mind. And this is one of the things they teach residents in psychiatry. When you have a patient in your office and you understand the difficulty they're in and you want to lead them out of that difficulty, you have to speak a language they understand. You can't speak in medical ease. You know what I mean by medical ease? They don't, they don't understand that. You have to speak very basic and elementary language that the person understands, referencing their experience. If I have an athlete, I will often use uh, athletic metaphors. If I have a surgeon, I will use surgical metaphors. I speak a language that they understand to try to bring them from where they are to a healthier place. So as we look at God's actions through the human history, what do we learn about how God deals with us? Throughout history, the history of the Bible, what do we see? At how God deals with us. Meets us where we are. Meets us where we are. Meets us so he stoops to meet us. Now let's look at some examples. When we were afraid of God, first he just called out, Adam, where are you? Gently. But when we remained afraid of God, he sent Moses and Jesus to stand between us and God. Don't let God talk to us, Moses. You talk to him, lest we die. Because we were afraid, God stooped and met us there. When we hated manna, what did God do? Not only did he send quail, yes, he gave us meat, but what else did he do? He gave us rules on what kind of meats to eat and how to prepare those meats so that if we insist on eating meat, this will be the least damaging to us. It will hurt us the least and keep us healthiest the longest. So... When we hated it, he stooped and said, okay, here's the quail, and if you prepare these meats and eat these foods in this way, you won't die as quickly and have as many diseases. How about when we wanted a king, what did he do? He chose our first two kings. When we wanted to cruelly dismiss our wives in divorce, what did he do? He gave divorce laws. Didn't he give the laws of divorce? Why did he do that? Because he wanted divorce? She says to protect the women who are getting divorced, to keep their dignity, to keep their station, to keep their reputation. In other words, your heart's insistent on doing this. Okay, here are the rules on how to do it. Does that mean God wanted it that way? Hmm. When, when we wanted to fight our way into Canaan, what did God do? He helped us fight, didn't he? Who brought the walls of Jericho down? Didn't he help us fight? Was that his plan? No, he said, I'll send the pestilence where I'll send the hornet. I'll send my terror before you. And I will drive them out. And little by little, you will occupy, occupy the land as they abandon the land. That wasn't good enough. We wanted to fight. We wanted blood. When we were so hardened and indifferent, even to death and killing itself, God gave us rules like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb and a life for a life. Why did he give us those rules? Was that his golden standard? This is how we should live our life? Or was he meeting us where we were to try to move us to a better place? When we were too immature and childlike to understand God's law of love and how breaches in his law of love bring death, he gave us animal sacrifices. And when we still didn't comprehend, he gave us the Ten Commandments. And when we still didn't comprehend, he gave us the Levitical law. Do we need to understand these things like the Israelites did? Or do we need to move past it? Past it. Way past it. 
way past it. How did the Israelites, let me give you some examples from scripture. How did the Israelites understand the purpose of the sanctuary service? What do you all think? Well, First Chronicles 29.21 says, The next day they made sacrifices to the Lord and presented burnt offerings to him, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand male lambs, together with their drink offering and other sacrifices in abundance for Israel. Now, just picture this now. 3,000 animals slaughtered and killed here. You think the blood was flowing? All right, here's 2 Chronicles 29.32-35. The number of burnt offerings the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 male lambs, all of them for the burnt offerings for the Lord. The animals consecrated as sacrifices amounted to 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep and goats. The priests, however, were too few to skin all the burnt offerings, so their kinsmen, the Levites, helped them until the task was finished and until other priests had been consecrated. For the Levites had been more conscientious in consecrating themselves. There were burnt offerings in abundance together with the fat of the fellowship offering and the drink offerings. What does that sound like to you? Do you think the Lord looked down and said, man, 3,000 slaughtered animals, 3,000 slaughtered animals, all that, all that blood. Boy, I just love that. Do you think the Lord liked that kind of stuff, seeing animals slaughtered? Why do you think they were slaughtering so many? Do you think they thought he liked it? Yes. yes. They're trying to appease him. They thought it would make him happy. Thought it would make him happy, trying to appease him, yes. But David was a man after God's own heart, and he was doing this as well. What does it mean he was after God's own heart? Did it mean he understood all these things about God through his entire journey? Or does it mean he was growing and open to growth and in, in repentance and, and transformation as God's spirit worked in his heart? What did it mean? He knew all things, or he's growing as God led him? David's not our example. David's not our example, she says. <laughs> yes, I mean, look at David's life. Yes. He had how many wives? And that was when he was 16. After me, yeah. said before he did all those things. Yeah. But weren't they sacrificing according to the Levitical law? Um, God gave them Levitical law again. And we're going to explore why was that. But did it tell them to do 3,000? No. Did it tell them more and more and more? Let's, let's see what else the Bible says. Sacrifices I do not, I do not care for. Learn justice and mercy. Well, we're going to read those texts just in a second. No, that's good. No, that's exactly right. But before we read those texts we, ha- texts, we need to ask the question. Does God like seeing animals killed? He says he likes to smell. Does he? Listen to this out of uh, Book of Jonah. This is after Jonah was bellyaching to God that God didn't wipe out the Ninevites. Remember, God was going to do it in Jonah, and, and Jonah's unhappy he didn't. This is what it says in Jonah 4, 10, and 11. But the Lord said, speaking to Jonah, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. What does that mean? Children. They're not old enough to know left and right. So there's over 120,000 children in Nineveh. But get the next verse. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about the great city? What do you hear God saying to, to Jonah? I love killing animals or I don't even want to kill the animals in Nineveh. Do we have this idea that God likes us to slaughter animals? He loved it. He loved the smell of all this burnt stuff going up. Well, if we think that, let's see what God actually says. This is God in Isaiah chapter 1, speaking to the children of Israel, starting in the verse 11. 
The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. What's, what's it say? What do you hear in this passage from God? More animal sacrifices. More animal sacrifices? He was after their heart. He was after their heart. The reason he gave the rules for, for sacrifices were to remind them of the, the pain, suffering, sin causes and to lead them to repentance. And they lost you know, sight of that before Jesus came. Exactly. You notice this, come let us reason together. And then earlier in verse 13 it said, stop bringing meaningless offerings or thoughtless offerings or doing this from rote without understanding what it's designed to teach. There's no merit. There's no value in the blood of a bull or blood of a lamb. It's only designed to get you to think, to get you to react, to open your mind to the realities of the universe, to get you to know me, reason with me. That's where transformation, healing, and cleansing comes. Yes? Understanding on this particular situation we see where God is trying to teach these people and these people just carried it too far. And we look at God being a very patient God in this matter, trying to re-instruct if he please, and at the same time we put it in the backdrop of the great controversy, instructing the angels and beings of other worlds in this whole matter to the truth about God. And God comes out really, uh, really patient and, uh, oh, there's another word I'm missing here, but it's, it's the whole scenario makes God look great. It does. And as we go through, hopefully you understand that this lesson is leading our way back to where you and I sit in this room. So if you don't hear it yet, watch for it. We are, we are taking a journey through God's treatment of, of people in the Old Testament, how he worked, what he wants, what they understood, and we're going to bring it right back home to us here in just a few moments. Yes? I just have one question. Cain and Abel... The Lord intended originally that the animals wouldn't be killed. He would just consume them on the altar, you know, when they offered their sacrifices. And one was the lamb, and the Lord consumed it. He would kill it. No, Abel actually sacrificed the lamb, and then it was consumed. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it was consumed. It wasn't in... Uh, At that time, as far as I know, yes. Okay, I didn't think that they killed it. They did. They did. Yes, Abel, yeah. Yes. What do we do with the 35 times that God says, this order is pleasing to me? We'll get to that. It's all part of dark, dark speech and symbols. Let's just go on and get to it. Let's let it build through the, through the history of the Old Testament. Psalms 51, 16, and 17. Here's David speaking after his repentance and conversion experience. It says, you do not delight in sacrifices, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in bird offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. 
So David, David, after his, his painful journey and mistakes, understood it's not sacrifices of animals that God wants. He wants a change of heart in his people. Here's Hosea 6.6. 6. What I want from you is plain and clear. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. Isn't that pretty straight and clear? That's a good news translation. Here is Mark 12, 28 to 34. Conversation between the lawyer and Jesus. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. So again, here we have this idea. God doesn't want burnt offerings, animal sacrifices, the slaughter of, of lambs. What he wants is the change of heart where we come to love him and love others. And then Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Notice what the Lord wants is a change in heart. He wants to heal us. It's always been about taking us who are broken, living in fear, living in self-centeredness, and changing us with a new heart and right spirit to love God and to love others. But back to this question that we started with. What did the children of Israel think about this system? Did you think they thought the more blood the better? And what else did they think? Well, the Bible prophesies it for us in Isaiah 53. Verse, oh, let's see, five. Maybe it's even one through five, but this is, you know, the, the, the prophecy of the, of the Messiah. It says, he was hated and rejected. His life was filled with sorrow and terrible suffering. No one wanted to look at him. We despised him and said, he is a nobody. He suffered and endured great pain for us, but we thought his suffering was punishment from God. He was wounded and crushed because of our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. Do you notice here, and you can check any of your versions, some say we esteemed him, we conceived of it, we considered it, we thought it. In other words, the Bible and Isaiah is prophesying when Christ comes, we would misunderstand and think God killed his son. Well, if that's what you think about what needs to happen for salvation, if you think that God has to execute his son in your place then, well, wouldn't you really think that he would like blood then? You'd misunderstand the whole thing. Why did they misunderstand the sacrificial system? This is where we're going to bring it home to you and me. Get these passages. Malachi verse two, chapter 2, verse 7. It is the duty of the priests to teach the true knowledge of God. People should go to them and learn my will because they are the messengers of the Lord Almighty. But in Hosea 4, we read, The Lord said, let no one accuse the people or reprimand them. My complaint is against you priests. Night and day you blunder on. 
and the prophets do no better than you. My people are doomed because they do not acknowledge me. You priests have refused to acknowledge me and have rejected my teaching, and so I reject you and will not acknowledge your sons as my priests. And then Jeremiah 2.8, the priests did not ask, where is the Lord? My own priests did not know me. What do you hear this saying? Why did the people not understand this system better? The teachers didn't understand it. The priests were supposed to teach it, but the priests didn't know God. Can they teach the truth about this system if they didn't know God? Who are the priests today? Are we making the same mistake today that the Jews made those many years ago? Are we, as the priesthood of believers, teaching the truth about God? Do we know Him? Or are we, like them, misrepresenting Him, teaching an appeasement, sacrificial system, like they did? Do we think God is pleased by blood, only better blood than animals, the blood of His Son? And when His Son pleads His blood to His Father, His Father's heart breaks in mercy and grace and forgiveness, but save the blood of His Son pleading to Him, well, the Father will strike out with wrath and anger. Are we priests today teaching such a twisted idea about God? Or do we have a better picture to present today? I have a question. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So I don't get what you're teaching. Thank you so much for asking that question. Did I suggest Christ didn't need to die for our salvation? I haven't said that. Christ absolutely had that. We could not be saved without the sacrificial death of Christ. What I said was the Father didn't execute him. There's a difference, isn't there? I never thought he executed him. I thought they did it on the cross. But even us wicked people did that. Interesting, because in the book Seventh-day Adventist Believe, 27 Fundamental Beliefs, on page 128, it says... (laughs) That in order for God to be uh, just... He had to execute justice upon sin, and thus the sinner. In this execution, Christ took the sinner's place according to God's will. You're executing Sabbath school class right now. That doesn't mean you're killing them. That is a nice interpretation. Do you think that's what was, what was being described in the, in, the, in the description? It would depend on who you asked. In Ministry Magazine, Woodrow Wilson, who is a seminary teacher of the Adventist seminary in the Philippines, wrote, Was God unjust in choosing a cross to execute his son when he could have chosen a noose, lethal injection, or an electric chair? Do you think I'm misunderstanding what some people are saying? The law of God condemns the sinner. God took on that sin and thereby the sacrifice of the death of his son per prearranged agreement satisfies the law. Again, making God look much better in this whole scene through this, again, great controversy. What law needed satisfying? To meet the Ten Commandments. She says the Ten Commandments. We'll come back to your comments. She has a question here. Yes. Didn't 
Jesus say, I have the power to lay my life down and take it up again? Okay, she says, didn't Jesus say, I have the power to lay my life down and take it up again? Yes, he did. No one can take my life from me. I will lay it down and I will take it up again. God did not. Oh, I agree with you. God didn't execute his son on the cross. But yet Christ died as our substitute for the purpose of saving this race. But how do we explain it if we don't explain it the traditional way that God was required by justice to execute the punishment of sin upon his son, which is the way it's traditionally explained? I never thought of it that way. But that's the way it's traditionally explained. I always thought he took our, my place. Would you look at, I mean, Romans 6.23 is a famous text that leads to sin and death, um, but it to God's eternal life. And when you think that Jesus willingly sacrificed his life for us and took our sins upon him, the result of sin is death. So I, I don't know if that makes sense. I like where you're going. Did he take our sins or did he take our sinfulness? Well, he, he took our sins for us. He had to die. I mean, God can't break his own law. So it wasn't God that made him die or caused him to die. It was the sin that broke his heart and that killed him. I really like the direction you're going. The sins or sinfulness, does it make a difference? Yes. Let's break it down now walk us through the two paths. There are two paths that stem with God's law that you mentioned. What law? And that's why I asked the question. There's one view of seeing God's law, that God is the great creator of all things. And after creating, he created or enacted or imposed or legislated a law. He imposed a law upon his creation. And as the great creator or law giver, he now has to impose penalties for his law to enforce the righteousness of that law. And if he doesn't enforce penalties, well then the law has no merit, no teeth, and, and so forth. And he will never not enforce his law. So we have a, a law that God created and imposes penalties and imposed law. There's another way of viewing it, though, and that is that all law is based on the law of love. God is love, therefore this law is not something he enacted, but it emanates from his very person. And that's why sometimes you've heard things like the law is a transcript of God's character, because it emanates from his character. He didn't enact it like we enact legislative laws on earth. It emanates from who he is. The point being, God is love. When he began to create, all creation was designed to run in harmony with the law of love. All creation runs in harmony with his character. That's the life principle. The law of love is the law of life for the universe. Deviations from the law result in death. So it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that this type of love is not self-seeking. It's other-centered. It's outward-moving. Romans tells us in chapter 1 verse 20 that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. You put these passages together, it tells us that we can look into nature and see the construction design template of love that life was designed to operate upon. We can see God's very nature or character, this other-centered giving. The oceans will give their waters to the clouds, which will rain over the lands, forming lakes, rivers, and streams, which give their water back to the oceans, a never-ending circle of giving, which brings life to everything. If a body of water separates from the circle, it stagnates, and everything in it dies. It's the circle of giving, which is the circle of life. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide freely to the plants, and the plants freely give back oxygen to you. If you say, look, I don't want to be part of that circle of giving thing. If my body made it, I have rights. I can keep it. You can't have it. Well, I think you quickly see the only way to do that is to stop breathing and to die. The circle of giving is the design template for life. Everything God created is true. If you know how electricity works, it's electrons moving from one atom to another atom, but they can only do so if there is a closed circle we call a circuit. 
When you throw the switch, you break the circuit. Electrons can't flow. The lights go out. This is not just true of the electrical appliances we use. This is true of the electrical circuits of your brain and body. They can only flow when the circles are complete. When you break the circles, electrons can't flow. And everything God created, the planets circle around the sun, the solar system circles in the galaxies, the galaxies circle in the universe. And when Ezekiel looked into heaven and saw God's throne in vision showing God's rulership, what did he see the throne was resting upon or the foundation of God's government was the rotating wheel, the circle within the circle, the wheel within the wheel. The, the law of love is the foundation of all God's government. And it's the principle upon which life is designed to, to operate. And so when you transgress the law... What happens? If you decide to transgress a law and tie a plastic bag over your head because you selfishly want to keep all the carbon dioxide your body makes, the wages of tying a plastic bag over your head is, does God have to inflict that upon you? No. So how did this law of love get broken in mankind? Imagine you're in a loving, other-centered relationship with a truly loving spouse. You guys have trust, you have love, and somebody close to you comes to you and tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair, your own brother, your own sister, your own mother, your own adult child, tells you your spouse is cheating. And they actually bring digitally enhanced photos they've made on their computer showing your spouse in the arms of another. Now, while it's not true, while your spouse is loyal and faithful, if you believe the lie, will something inside of you change? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Satan is the father of lies. He lied about... God, Adam and Eve, believed the lies, and the lies believed broke the circle of love and trust. And notice what happens. As soon as circle of love and trust is broken, what happens? Fear. Fear and selfishness take root in the heart. I no longer trust you, God. I believe you're not good anymore. Or in the case of your spouse, I believe you're cheating on me and sleeping around with a prostitute. I'm not getting in bed with you. You might bring me a disease. I don't trust you. I'm afraid of you. You see? Fear and selfishness now is in the heart. And so, rather than trusting God, we run and try to protect self. This in the world today is called survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest is the infection in God's creation, which is destroying it. It's the opposite of the law of love, which is the law of giving. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our life for each other. This is God's law, which means I love you so much, I'll do whatever I have to for your health and welfare and beneficence, including, if it comes down to it, give my life that you might live. Which is at war with Satan's principle that says, I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including if it comes down to it, I'll kill you that I might live. This is the root war in each of our hearts. And because of Adam and Eve's sin, we were born infected with this condition of watching out for number one. Self-centeredness, survival of the fittest. This is the sin condition. The carnal nature, if you will. Christ came to cure it. Imagine an HIV-infected man and an HIV-infected woman get together and have a child who was born HIV-infected. What did the child do wrong? Nothing. Child didn't do a thing wrong. Is a child still have a condition which, unremedied, will kill it. That's you and me, and everybody since Adam and Eve. We did not choose to be born in a condition of sin. It was with, with, without our choice. And God knows that. That's why he's not mad at us. Just anymore, let's say your child gets HIV-infected and marries an HIV-infected woman, and you have grandchildren that are born as babies HIV-infected. What is your attitude toward those grandkids? Is there anything but compassion and love for those kids? Even though it's not the kid's fault, will there be symptoms of that condition that come along? Yes. You see, we are born in this condition, and what are the symptoms of this sin-heart condition that we're born with? What does it look like? Sinful acts. 
the bad behavior. Christ said, you say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. He's saying those acts are symptoms of a sick heart. Unremedied, we will all act sinfully. Just like an unremedied HIV-infected child will have all the opportunistic infections that come with HIV and AIDS, even though they did nothing wrong. Therefore, our condition, human race, is terminal. It's dying. Christ came to save and to heal. Think not that I came to condemn the world. I didn't come to condemn, but to save. This is where it gets really cool. Why did he have to die? What needed changing in mankind? Selfishness and fear needed to be replaced with perfect love. What's the new covenant? I will write my law on your heart and mind. So Christ came to put the law of love back into the human being where it no longer resided. How did he do that? Well, Christ is a unique being in all creation history. You see, Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. God breathed into his nostrils, breath of life. He became a perfect, sinless being, Eve taken from his side. Did you and I come into the world that way? Did Christ's humanity come into the world that way? No. You and I came in the world from a sinful mother and a sinful father. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51. Did Jesus' humanity come into the world that way? No. He's not exactly like Adam. He's not exactly like us. He's unique. He had a sinful mother, but his father was the Holy Spirit who came upon the woman, and she had this human God-man growing inside her, so he had a humanity that was subject to all the temptations we're subject to. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And it says in James chapter 1 that no one should say God tempts, because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. So, are both of those passages true? Christ was tempted in every way just like us, and we're tempted by our own evil desires? Well, then does that mean Christ, actually internal to his humanity, experienced temptation to act in self-interest to save self? Look at Gethsemane. At Gethsemane, did he experience powerful human emotion? And if he followed what his emotions were saying, what would he have done? Notice, he was tempted just like us. But the difference was, while he could experience temptation like us, his mind was in perfect harmony with his Father. The circle of love was never broken in Christ. And so this is what it means. He says, in Christ Jesus, the human brain, Jesus Christ, the two antagonistic principles warded out. God's law of love versus the survival of the fittest instinct, warring it out. And Christ chose, no one can take my life, I will give it freely. Why then did he have to die? Well, was Christ on the cross like a helpless thief? No. No. Once they were up there, what could they do to get themselves down? Could Christ, at any moment, if he wanted to, end it? I can call 12 legions of angels and put an end to this any second. So if at any point along death's approach, as death is starting to consume Christ's humanity, if he exercises his power to stop it, who does he save? The only way to destroy selfishness in the human being was to take it upon himself and overwrite it perfectly with love. And in Christ Jesus, love destroyed sin. And thus you read in the scriptures, in Hebrews 2.14, he took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. 2 Timothy 1, 1.9 and 10, by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. And 1 John Three, it says that by his death he destroyed the devil's work. And what is the devil's work? To replace the image of God in man with the devil's image. That's his work. Trying to make us look like Satan. To occupy the spirit temple. 
Christ came to reverse all this by his death. He perfectly put the law of love, which is the law of life, back in his own human journey experience brain. This is why the grave couldn't hold him. Psalms says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving or restoring the soul. It's the law of life. He was destined to come out of the grave once he perfectly completed his mission. And thus it says in Hebrews 5.8, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. How does his perfection help us? Christ said to the disciples, it's expedient for you that I leave, because if I don't leave, then the comforter will not come. When he comes, he will not speak of his own. He will speak only what he hears. He will take what is mine and make it known to you. What do you think that means? He takes the perfection of Christ's character that he achieved and reproduces it in us. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. He writes the law on the heart and mind. We get the mind of Christ. We get regenerated and renewed. All Christ's victory gets actually reworked in us as the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and transforms us. And so then, back to the quotation out of Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. What does that mean? Does it mean without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness? If you have cancer, or your child is dying of cancer, and you take them to the doctor, and the doctor gives them treatment, what do you want the cancer to do? Go into remission. You see, remission means that the cancerous cells remit back to their precancerous healthy state. Without the shedding of Christ's blood, without his sacrificial death on the cross, sinfulness in mankind would not remit. Our characters would not remit back to God's original design that he designed Adam to be. But in Christ Jesus, sinfulness remitted. He overcame and restored perfectly God's character and law of love back into the human species. Does this make sense? It's beautiful. And we find then all the scriptures come true. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. The fullness of God dwelt in the Son bodily. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, not to condemn the world, but to save it. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare a son, but gave him up. How will he not, along with him, also give us all things? In other words, you find this complete unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together for one cause, the eradication of sinfulness from the human heart and the restoration of godliness in mankind. You don't find one member of the Godhead working on the other member of the Godhead to pay a legal penalty to get him to be gracious and forgiving. It's not there. Let's move on to understand some more of the sanctuary system because this Old Testament system teaches us more of this stuff when we understand it. What was the system designed to teach? Some scripture, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are the God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? Or 6.19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. The sanctuary, the Old Testament model, the Old Testament object lesson, the Old Testament theater, with all their little costumes and their stage and their play and their script and their director that's directing all these things, that old theater was designed to teach what? Jesus. Who's the lamb? Jesus. What's the blood represent? His life. his life, his character, the truth about God, all those things. And in the system, it got put all over the place, right? John 6, Jesus said in the, the interpretation of the meaning, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. What's, where's he saying the real application is? In the spirit temple. That we are to ingest Christ. We are to have his character reproduced within us. We are to have Christ's likeness rewritten into our hearts. In the old system, where was the law kept? In the new system, I will write my law. Heart and mind. Notice. 
Okay, the Old Testament was to teach that. Let me give you some quotes. Boy, I don't have time to read them all. Um, Education, page 35 and 36. You can read that one on your own. And this is out of Zyre of Ages, page 161. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the Creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the Divine One. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity. And through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again His temple. God designed that the temple Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. You have the opportunity to be a temple for God's spirit. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with such pride. They did not yield themselves as holy temples to the divine spirit. The courts of the temple of Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin. From the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, and the evil habits that corrupt the soul. Does this have a, a special meaning unto 2300 days and then the sanctuary will be cleansed? You think it's talking about that? Well, she goes on to quote out of Malachi. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. The, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight but who may abide the day of his appearing, for he is like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap, and he shall purify the Levites and make them as gold and silver. Who are the Levites? The priesthood of believers. So what about the true sanctuary? What is the true sanctuary? The one that the old sanctuary in Old Testament Israel was designed or patterned after. What is the true one? Well, Hebrews tells us, the point of what we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. So we believe there's another sanctuary set up by the Lord, not by man, right? What is it? Get this. First question, who built the other sanctuary? Who's the builder of the other sanctuary? The real one, not the one in the Old Testament. God is. Now get this. This is Zechariah 6, 12, and 13. Tell him... This is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is Branch, with a capital B. Who's it talking about? Jesus. He will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Wait a minute. This is Zechariah. When was this written in history? This was written well after the sanctuary was built by Moses, wasn't it? Before Paul came, too. And before Paul came, before Christ came to his incarnation. Yet it says he's going to branch out from his place and build the sanctuary, the real one. Well, who's the builder here? The branch. The branch is Christ, so we're not building it. But what is he building? I thought he already had this really cool multi-level story building in heaven made out of these really heavenly, cool golden stones and all this kind of stuff in heaven. Don't we need to answer the question? What does it mean he's branching out to build the sanctuary? Building us. I thought the well, sanctuary was built after the model of the one in heaven. Yes, it was. But yet it's saying here that he's going to branch out now and build that one, the one built by the branch, not built by us, the real one. What's it built out of? 
This is what it says in Ephesians 2, 19 and 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's house, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Do we have a maybe a, a darkened old understanding about what the heavenly sanctuary really is? Is, is the Bible telling us that the branch is going to branch out and build it and it's built out of living beings? Well, let's go on further. First Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to the Lord. And then from one of the founders of our church, in third manuscripts release, page 231, this is going to blow you away. The first tabernacle, built according to God's directions, was indeed blessed of him. The people thus were preparing themselves to worship in the temple not made with hands, the temple of the heavens. The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at the quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without the sound of axe or hammer. The timbers were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought to this house all prepared for use. Notice what she's saying here. That the old system modeled that the construction process preparing all the timbers and blocks and building blocks for the Temple of Solomon were prepared long away, away somewhere else. And when they brought together, they were just simply assembled. No construction and building went on there, hewing and so forth. This is an object lesson now because she said we're preparing for, to, to worship in the heavenly temple. Get what she says now. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are here as probationers, and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed, and we must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into church capacity with defects of character, but we must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. In view of this, we must see that our temple is not defiled with sin. We should be lively stones, not dead ones, but live ones that will reflect the image of Christ. We must be worshipers in spirit and truth. Third manuscript release, page 231. Rough edges made straight. Rough edges made straight. Do you get a different construct of what the whole message is about? The cleansing of the sanctuary. Till 2300 days, the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Same as the, the, the Malachi 3 text of the, the Lord will come to his temple and cleanse the Levites. The same, t- the same passage. Or the passage in, in uh, Daniel chapter 7. Christ coming to the Ancient of Days and gives discernment or judgment to the saints who can throw off the lies of the little horn and free their minds from the lies about God. All describing the same stuff. We are being fitted. We are being prepared for an eternal life, and thus when we understand it in this context, think what Revelation now means in Revelation 3.12. 
Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is coming down out of the heavens, and I will also write on him a new name. Imagine, in the old way of thinking, you're a pillar in God's temple and you never leave it. For all eternity of billions and quadrillions of years, you're stuck in this one place in the heavenly universe, in this building in heaven. Because you never get to leave it. But when you understand that the heavenly sanctuary is actually constructed out of living stones, it doesn't matter where you are in the universe, you are always one of its pillars. You are standing for the truth about him. You demonstrate that the power of God restored in the heart of mankind frees us from sin and restores us to godliness. We become eternal witnesses to all heaven future. You see, Christ witnesses what God's character looks like in human being who's never sinned. What we get to witness is those of us who have been corrupted by sin, who have come back to a trust relationship with God, can be fully restored to godliness. And for all eternity, we demonstrate that God's methods, His law of love, His abiding presence, heals, restores, and recreates. And so in closing, let's go to the symbol of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, which is in our lesson for, I think, Wednesday and Thursday or something, or Monday. The Ark of the Covenant symbolizes what? The full restoration of the universe in harmony again. The Shekinah presence represents the Father. The angels represents the onlooking host. The lid made of solid gold represents Jesus. It's the word hilasterion, the place and means of reconciliation in in, uh, Romans chapter 3. The box itself, though, this is what's cool. The box was made out of acacia wood, which is a wood that was kind of holy, but it was covered completely in gold. Represents the heart and mind of those saints on earth who were completely sealed and restored back to full unity with God. What was kept inside the ark? Three things. The law, manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. Do you know which order they were put in? Which came first? Manna. What's manna symbolize? Jesus said, I am the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. The manna symbolized the heavenly bread, which is Jesus. So when we take in Jesus first, we take in the truth which repels the lies of Satan, and we're one back to trust in God. So we take Jesus first. Once we take Jesus and are one to trust, we open the heart, and the Spirit is pulled out and the, poured out, and the new covenant is completed where he writes his law in our hearts and minds. Once he writes his law in our hearts and minds, we then move forward no longer in fear and selfishness, but we move forward in love, the law of love being restored, and we live a life of peaceable fruits of righteousness. So we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, the dead stick of Aaron. We become living beings, living souls of Christ, bringing forth the fruits of righteousness, the rod that budded. And thus you see in the ark the symbolism of the entire universe back under one head, even Jesus Christ. The Shekinah touched Jesus Christ. The angelic host touched Jesus Christ. And the converted, healed, restored sinner touched the lid, Jesus Christ. All are brought into unity in one in Jesus Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such incredible lengths to meet us where we are, to bring us back to where you are. May your spirit be poured out. May our minds be enlightened. May we we see past just the mere symbols to the reality of your character of love and all that you have done for us. And may we partake of the truth of Jesus Christ. May we be one to trust. May your spirit be poured out to write your law of love in our hearts and minds. And may we live the life of righteousness, bringing up fruits for your kingdom, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.